doing, doing our best to uh, make sure you didn't miss too much. As we get to Acts chapter 3, and last week we looked at um, the healing of a lame man by Peter, or uh, assumes, we assume that it's by Peter, but part of what Peter's going to say here is, no, it wasn't me that did it. Um, and there's this recurring pattern. We talked about this before. There are actions that need to be interpreted by deeds. So that happened in chapter 2, the action, the event of the outpouring of the Spirit and everyone speaking in different languages, and then that interpretation, which was provided by Peter. Here, something very similar is happening. There's the event, the action, the healing of the man, and now Peter's going to interpret it by way of another speech or sermon. Okay? But before we get into the passage itself, I want to start with this question. A common saying has it that ignorance is bliss. What's true about this expression, and, and what are the limitations of it? Ignorance is bliss. Yes, Court. Well, uh, we try and keep our children away from trouble. There was a sure. video on TV about uh, the bombing in right. uh, Maine or I don't know. Wherever, yeah. wherever it is, and this father had his little daughter, and you could hear the bombs going off, and he's laughing and joking with her, mm. and she is not aware of mm-hmm. what is happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he says, I just pray that they don't hit our building. But, sure, right. But uh, that's where it's bliss. Right, so that there's things, especially for um, the young folks, that they don't need to be exposed to yet. Don't, so there's that kind of ignorance that is bliss. Good. Other thoughts about that? Where it can be helpful and where it, what are its limitations? Oh, okay. Can you give us the other side of the coin? Yeah. When, when we were on vacation, we'd go, my mother couldn't read a map for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> my dad could, could had a map in his head almost. Right. He knew, <laughs> he'd get so frustrated <laughs> once we're reading the map and she says, Oh, we're in that state. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, as a kid, sitting in the back and listening. Right, right. And knew we were lost. Right. <laughs> you were no longer ignorant. It was apparent. We're lost. But I was in the fact that I wondered if we'd ever be able to get back home. Sure. Because... So long, so long as you're under the illusion that mom and dad at least know what they're doing and, and where they're going, then you're able to have some measure of peace. Um, but when you lose that, uh, that, that happened uh, with me this past week, um, and uh, surely that, uh, a story that you'll surely hear me repeat more than once. Um, long story short, I got the Jeep stuck. And I was off-roading with the kids, and, uh, which was, yeah. They wanted to come, okay? They wanted to come, and we got stuck. And well, it wasn't so much that we got stuck as uh, the car broke, the tie rod uh, broke. It's all fixed now. It's fixed now. But, um, you know, I was able to keep my cool with all of it, but we, we kind of got to that point where it was clear to them, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> and we're probably going to have to die. And, you know, that moment was probably when I said, okay, kids, we're going to pray. not that not that prayer is an uncommon event around our house at least i hope it's not but still it's like okay if we're praying that probably means something is is not quite right here so um 
it all worked out. I'll tell you the full story another time. But um, okay, so I mean, ignorance can be a blessing in some cases. It can be bliss. In other times, it's not. Anne, were you going to say something? Or in the case of when there's a ha- there's a tree on your house. Or exactly. <laughs> hey, I don't know. Well, yep. No longer bliss, right? Uh, we're going to see something interesting in Peter's sermon here when he talks about ignorance and the role of, of ignorance. And if we don't know something, are we still guilty of it before God? Uh, well, hold your thoughts on that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, Lord willing. All right, let's get into Acts chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 11 here. And I'll read uh, this paragraph through verse 16. Uh, while he, that is the man who had been healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Remember, they're at the temple. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Okay, lot to unpack here. Anything that uh, initially jumps out at you from there? Yeah, Ann. Homothumadon. Yes. Was yes. that here in verse 11? The people ran together? Yes. Yeah, right. And so there you see it in its literal manifestation of running or rushing rushing together, going in the same, uh, same direction. Okay, I'll just be quiet until you get, you get back. <laughs> okay, so again, here's Peter. He's interpreting what has just happened happen in the healing and everybody is looking at peter and their first reaction is what well peter has some superpowers right that's the first thing that he wants to address you know something similar happened with john the baptist not because john was doing healings but everyone was going to john and thinking what he was the messiah he was the christ john had to disabuse them of that notion no i am not the christ Faithful witnessing, and that's a recurring theme in Acts, comes up here. Faithful witnessing is simply pointing. See, It's just pointing. No, not me, this guy. All right, It's not through our power or piety, Peter says, but the pice. This is number two on your handout here. Neither power nor piety, but the pice is responsible for the healing. Okay, Pice is a, a Greek word. Um, the uh, genitive form of it is pidos, pice or pidos. Um, from which we get the words pediatric or pediatrician or so forth. Um, it means servant or child. It's a more broad term. That there's other terms that are used more narrowly to describe children. Pice can refer either to a household servant um, or it can refer to a child. And sometimes, you know, in our families, those are the same thing, right? Um, that's a joke, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> love my kids. I was, I was totally with you. You're, you're, you're with me on that. Yeah. Um, but... This is, a, <laughs> this is a really significant usage of the term that Peter's doing here. When he says, uh, it's not our power or piety that made him walk, but God, the God of our fathers, 
glorified his pice, his servant Jesus. The reason it's so significant is because this is a term that is um, especially featured in those chapters of the book of Isaiah where we have what are known as the servant songs. Have you heard of this before? Um, there's a series of, of songs or prophecies related to the servant, this mysterious servant character. And it's not clear, I mean, for the people who were hearing it at the time, it wasn't clear, who is this servant? Is it the prophet Isaiah himself? Is it the people of Israel? Or is it a third you know, messianic type figure who's yet to come? And while there's elements of truth to both the first two, ultimately, it, be, it becomes clear, particularly in light of Jesus, it was referring to Christ himself, to the Messiah. Um, to give just a little example of that from Isaiah 52, the end of Isaiah 52, which is leading into that great chapter, Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant, my pice, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And it goes on to say, you know, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, and so on. And it talks about the servant. Peter here is connecting these dots. He's saying this servant from Isaiah is the servant, the Pice, who is our Lord Jesus. He's the one that you guys killed, but God raised him up. So it's a really important connection, and it's going to happen um, elsewhere in the book of Acts as well. If you keep your finger there, turn to Acts chapter 8, and we'll, of course, study this in uh, much more detail. Um, but in Acts 8, you have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who's riding along in his carriage, and um, Philip is there, and he overhears him reading. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the passage of the scripture that the eunuch was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This is Isaiah 53. This is part of that same servant song. And then verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? There's the million-dollar question. Then verse 35, open, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. We've talked about this already, how this was, this was the MO of the early Christians. When they're proclaiming the gospel, the way they do it, especially makes sense when you're speaking to fellow Jews. You do it as he is the fulfillment of these promises, of the promises from Israel's scripture, these prophecies. You have been looking forward to this pious, this servant. Now I'm telling you, this servant is Jesus himself. So it's a very significant, important connection for Peter to be drawing here in, in Acts chapter 3. Okay, you with me on, on that? You following me on that connection? Yeah, Leslie. Uh, I find it important here too that Beginning with this scripture, he started where the man was. Yeah. He didn't start Oops. with Genesis or yeah. anything like that. You start where the people are. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Oh, it'll be okay. Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good point just in terms of uh, witnessing. Yeah, you start with where somebody's at, not with where you think they should be at, where you wish they were at, but you start with where they are at 
and work from there. And in this case, the fans are reading Isaiah 53. Now, from our perspective, we might look, well, that's kind of a softball, you know. But, uh, you know, he works with where he's at. Wherever the people are at, that's where you start with. Thank you. That's a good point. Okay, so Peter says, he's really bringing it home here. and convicting. Why do you wonder at this? This is the God of Abraham, the God of our fathers. Uh, he has glorified his servant Jesus. And he just kind of recounts some of that history from, that we know from the Gospels. You delivered over and denied him in the presence of Pilate. When Pilate, this is interesting, Pilate had decided to release him. He makes that explicit. Then verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Think of just the irony of that statement there. You killed the author of life. The one who brought life into being, this one, you snuffed him out. Uh, But God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Question. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. My daughter brought up a passage from Isaiah chapter 7 that actually kind of made me think um, in this, like, following John type of idea. Yeah. uh, the passage goes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, a virgin shall a son. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. It's almost like this is aspects of John's life, but if you read the whole thing, it's more referring to Christ. So yes, I can almost see a reason for some confusion there. <laughs> for sure, yeah. I mean, with a lot of these uh, prophecies, they have a both-and quality to them. Um, one way of thinking about it is like if you were looking out, you're driving down 22 and you look out at the, at the hills and how uh, there, it, it can be hard to tell which one is in front of another, right? Just from the matter of perspective. You see a series of hills, but you can't quite tell which one is in front, which one is in back. There's that, uh, what's the, the fancy term, Ian? Sfumato. Sfumato, um, as Court would put it. Um, that, <laughs> <laughs> referring to the kind of the coloration of it. Um, but it's a way to think about these prophets. The, the prophets are given this revelation from the Lord, and they see it um, like that progression of hills. And some of it is going to apply more directly to their present circumstances. And others of it, it's not going to be fulfilled until Christ comes. They can't necessarily tell when is that going to happen, um, but they can see it, you know, um, and you know, Habakkuk talks this way. I see it now, but not yet. And uh, that's often the character of, of Old Testament biblical prophecy. So, yeah, I think you know, a passage like that, you can see how they might have not been totally clear on all the details. You know, they had like the chalk outline on the ground of what was yet to, what was yet to come. Yeah, Esther. It's kind of like we don't know when Christ will come back. That's right. And when he does come, in retrospect, everything will be clear, you know. Everything will be obvious, but um, in the meantime, it's in a mirror dimly, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, <clears throat> different groups have different ideas of what it's going to be like when he comes back. Yes. Just like before he was incarnate. That's true. Time, everybody had an idea of what it was going to be like, but nobody really hit the nail on the head. <coughs> this is true. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And that's a good analogy. Before the time uh, that Jesus himself came, everybody had an idea of what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes, where he's going to come, what's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Some were more right than others, um, but nobody fully knew or appreciated. I mean, this is kind of the whole thrust of the Gospels. There's nobody, you know, saying, I got it right. The rest of you guys got it wrong. 
they all, in the end, got it wrong. See? Um, so we always have a posture of humility and we're not, uh, when it comes to Jesus' return. Like, he himself told us he didn't know when it was going to, to happen. But kind of along those lines, a question for you. When it comes to Jesus' resurrection, did Jesus, how to put this, did Jesus resurrect himself? Did he raise himself up? Or did the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raise him up? Which, which is the way that you normally think about it? If you've thought about this, which seems more intuitively the case or more natural? Did Jesus raise himself up or was Jesus, passive voice, raised up by the Father? Doesn't the scripture say that he raised him? That the father, the father raised him? It does. And I mean, we have that right here um, where it says, uh, this one God <coughs> raised up. Right. Um, and if you, were, if you yourself were doing it, it would be rising, wouldn't it, instead of raised? I don't, I'm not going to try and work on the, the grammatical <laughs> I, part. I, I don't raise. Right, you rise. I rise. Yes, that's right. Um, and then, the creeds say it. The creeds don't say he was raised by the Father. Right. He rose again on the third day. He rose again on the third day. So it's more of an active thing. Notice this from, uh, you have it at the bottom of page one on your handout from, uh, this is from John 10. Jesus, Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Um, I mean, I'm asking you a trick question because the scriptures speak in both ways. And, um, oh, and just as a side note, that, good, that um, sermon of uh, the Good Shepherd, and that passage I just quoted from, um, and the healing of the man who was blind happened at Solomon's portico, same place that this happened and this speech is happening. So just an interesting um, connection there. But, so who is Peter talking to here? Is this the leaders of the church? I would, the yeah, he was, I would say he's talking to a combination of people here. I mean, these would be Jews, but it's not narrowly just the leaders. He's talking, he's talking to all of them. And so he's kind of saying, look, all of you guys are complicit. We're complicit in the death of Jesus. It just seems a bit heavy-handed, honestly. Sure. Like, I mean, because, A, Peter was kind of complicit in it. Yes. So all of a sudden, he went from the guy denying Jesus three times to the guy accusing right. others of doing it. Right. Which maybe is in, in Peter's character. And I was always told, like, you know, the crowds were kind of ginned up by the different yeah. you know, leaders and everything. And so, you know... Was everyone like in on it? Like he was like, yeah, you, you guys all all knew what was going on. You were you, you were there, right. or, or something like, or like I, I guess like how big of a deal is this at this point that what's going on? Like this is right after Pentecost, so maybe it's a huge a huge deal. Everyone knows about it, or people like what's a huge deal? The healing like, of the... they're at the synagogue. Like does everybody know what has been going on? Is this like a huge deal? I mean, we think it's a big deal, but right. we were like, yeah, I, I missed last Sunday, so yeah, what happened? Oh, happened? guy rose from the dead. <laughs> I wrote my dad, I didn't even know it. And, right. You know, I mean, um, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. We can't really um, answer beyond what we have in the scriptures. We get the, we certainly get the impression that it's a big deal, that there's a lot of buzz about it at this time. Um, and yeah, I mean, as far as the complicity of, of all these guys, Peter wants to convict, he wants them to be convicted. And so, I mean, as a, a Lutheran preacher, we put it in terms of, you know, a good sermon has both law and gospel. 
law in terms of that convicting word of God, pointing out the ways that we have sinned where we need to repent. But gospel, you know, the consolation of God, the, the good news and forgiveness. And I think that what we have with Peter's sermons, I mean, this is kind of the vindication for Lutheran preachers here, is you've got long gospel. Like Peter wants to convict them and show them of, of their sin, not leave them wondering, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I mean, is it, is it pretty heavy-handed? Is he really going for it? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, I don't usually stand in the pulpit and say, yay, you killed Jesus, right? Um, that might cause some people to turn off. But in that moment, I think it's what they needed to hear, to recognize their complicity in this um, atrocity, this miscarriage of justice that has happened, right? Um, so, there it is. The, to, back to the, um, our question at hand, too, though, of, you know, does Jesus raise himself, or is he, does he rise? Does he rise, or is he raised? Thank you, Carla. Um, <laughs> and the, the answer that the scriptures give is both. And um, I would say that that, depending on how you frame it, it accents different things. So if you put it in terms of Jesus raising himself, um, it emphasizes the, uh, his divinity and the fact that he is the divine son of God. And John's gospel does stress this even more than the other gospels. So it makes sense that we would have those words in the gospel of John, where Jesus has the power to raise himself. He is the author of life. And so you can take his life away, he can take it back again, right? He lays it down of his own accord. But on the flip side, um, when it's Jesus being raised by the Father, this especially underscores and emphasizes the vindication aspect of his resurrection. In other words, you killed him, but the Father raised him up. Uh, in the book of Romans, letter to the Romans, Paul begins by saying, God's son was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's not saying that he wasn't the Son of God before, but now it is unmistakable and it's an unavoidable conclusion for those who have ears to hear that if the Father has vindicated Jesus, if he has brought him back to life, what that tells you is, yes, he truly was the Son of God. Listen to him. Listen to him. Yeah, Carla. I think that passage in John that you have at the bottom of page one, it says that he has the authority, but it doesn't say he exercised that authority. Okay, I, fair enough. I mean, that he has the authority, but that he didn't exercise the authority. I mean, he uses that authority to allow himself to be, right. to be given over to death. And you, know, you remember the disciples coming um, and saying, you know, um, should we call down fire on them? Or again, at Gethsemane, they're ready to, um, to start a battle. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. He's in full control of the whole situation. So um, what you're suggesting is maybe he doesn't use that, that power, that authority to raise himself. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think that it's a both and. I do think it's a, a both and. Um, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we should um, define it. You know, uh, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. Man burdened with sin, separated from God, mm -hmm. all encompassing. Yeah. You know, let that mystery stay. You know, but he has heard when he cried to him. Yes. And so, who is it? What is it? I think it's a mystery. No, I, Peter says God raised him. Yes. And this is, and and I will say, I think um, 
I mean, that's certainly the preferred language of the scriptures. It emphasizes that. And uh, I think the only time we want to say, well, Jesus had the authority to um, raise himself is when we want to emphasize that uh, under, underscore, he is equal with the Father, you know, to use kind of more Nicene Creed language. You know, he's equal with God the Father. He is the divine Son of God. But uh, you're right, it's, it's mysterious. Yes, you have a question, young one? Okay, you'll, you'll come back to it. Okay. Um, <laughs> but the, the Father raises him up, expresses something really profound about that relationship. And it's central to this witness of the early church. All right. Uh, I want to I press forward here. So God raised him from the dead, Peter says. And then verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It's a really interesting way that Peter is articulating it here. First, he says his name, by faith in his name, corrects himself. And he's made this man strong. Then he says, the faith that is through Jesus. Like, that just seems like an awkward, clumsy way of him putting it here. But it's capturing, again, this dynamic of um, I, I, the Trinitarian relationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What Peter, I think, is really trying to emphasize is that our faith is in God the Father through Jesus or in Jesus' name. When we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. It's the, we're, we're offering those prayers through Christ as the mediator to God the Father. So is it proper to say that we believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, of course. But it's also appropriate to say we believe through Jesus in God the Father. And Peter especially really wants to emphasize that here. Why? Why is that important for him to emphasize that their faith is in the God not only the God who is Father, but the God of the fathers. Why is he stressing that? It's a, a Jewish audience. It's a Jewish audience. And as we mentioned last week, he's, he wants to still make clear that there's continuity between this you know, rogue uh, movement called the way and what God has always taught and promised through the scriptures. They are not trying to start some new religion here, right? Peter's trying to persuade them this is the fulfillment of what God has always promised. It's not that we are believing in a different God. We believe in the Lord, the God of Israel, but we believe in him through his son, Jesus, who is the son of God. You, you with me there? I mean, it's a nuance, but it's, it's an important one. And you see it elsewhere in the scriptures too. So um, in John's gospel, to all who did receive him, that is, who received Jesus, who believed in his name. Um, I believe what that's expressing is not so much that you believed the name of Jesus, but that it's by means of his name you believed. See, he gave the right to become children of God. Or again, in Peter's letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, He was foreknown, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, there's that again, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay. You're, you believe in God the Father by means of God the Son and in the power of God the Holy Spirit. It's, that Trinitarian uh, power is always there. 
And this is why the church needed to um, develop and make clear this doctrine of the Trinity. Because if you didn't have it, you need to... You, you need to understand it, articulate it, in order to make sense of the biblical data, if I can put it that way. So, thus, Peter is emphasizing that. Our faith in God is through Christ. Is that clear, or questions or, or comments about that? Yeah? The little girls and I are working our way through Matthew uh-huh. as part of school, so we're doing a lot of parables. And I'm thinking of them right now because it seems like almost every time something amazing happens, Jesus is like, your faith has made you well. Or the, um, they, the people who get it know that all they have to do is touch the hem of his yes, robe. Yes. Just, can you just say it and I know it'll be done. Yep. And the lady says, you know, she even seems to have some Old Testament understanding that I know I'm not the one who is supposed to get yeah. this, but even the dogs can yes, the crumbs. Yep. Night, woman. And it's the, the faith in God's overall promise. That yes. then it, is that appropriate to parallel that with this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that faith, the faith in the promise and the faith that they have in God through Jesus is manifested, like you say, throughout those, those miracles where they get sent away. Your faith has saved you. Faith becomes, and where people, um, I think, maybe get led a little bit astray with this, is when they think faith has some kind of power in itself. And you know, if you just had enough faith, then you would be healed. The power is not in faith, per se. The power is in God. Okay? And faith is then the, the proxy, the means by which we ha- access God's power. Right? Or you think of it like um, you know, there's the uh, outlet um, to God, and faith is like what plugs it into the outlet so that now that power um, is, is accessed. But God is the one who is providing the, the power. Yeah. When people say you don't have enough faith or you be getting well, right. they're putting it. Yes. On you now, yeah. instead of God. Yeah. It's, it's me. I don't have enough faith. Right. And there's something wrong with me. Yes. Because I don't, rather than... <clears throat> Which is an awful place to be, right? right? Like, if only you had enough faith, then this wouldn't be happening to you. Right. And, I mean, the scriptures speak of faith in two different ways. Um, you might think of it as faith as an on-off switch and faith as a muscle. So faith as an on-off switch is, like, you either have faith or you don't. Even faith, you know, the size of a mustard seed, right? Or even the smoldering wick. Um, the littlest bit of faith is the saving faith that God accounts righteousness through Christ. But then it also speaks of faith as a muscle, where we are, you know, growing and strengthening in faith. It doesn't just stay static, but it continues to, to increase and, and grow and mature, right? Both of those things are true. But it's, it's wrong to say, well, if you just believed a little bit more, a little bit harder. How many, guys do we, how many times do we got to look through in the scriptures the people of God themselves, strong people of faith, whom still, for reasons beyond our knowing, God allows to go through extreme difficulties and even death, right? I mean, lest we forget, every single one of the apostles, save for John, died a martyr's death. Okay? Well, if only they had believed enough, then God would have delivered. No. Right? No. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Jesus too, right? And Jesus too. He believed completely. He, he believed completely. Believe. Put that in your pipe and it's smoke faith. it. That's right. Faith is perfect. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. If anything, you know, well, maybe I'm believing too much. This is what's happening to me. Um, <laughs> no, sorry, I don't mean to be flip about it, but really, I, I just I've seen it again and again how destructive it is that kind of of language and idea. Well, if you just believed a little bit more, if you just trusted a little bit more, 
Look, there are things that we just don't know, that we don't have answers to. We, we trust in God. I trust when dark my road. You know? so. so it is difficult when the language is like, you need to get faith. Something that you need to achieve. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's something like, you know, I mean, my wife's a ministry, and I don't, you know, I don't know how people who don't have a faith yeah. go through difficult times. Yeah. Right? So it's something that we have and we don't have. Right? So, I mean, it's difficult to parse out the whole wanting more faith and less faith. And Jesus says, ye have little faith. Sure. He quantifies it. Yeah. You don't have a lot. If not, you wouldn't have woke me up, whatever it is. So, I feel like it is it's not as clear. It, He's know, just grumpy because they woke him up from the nap. Right, exactly. He's just grumpy. This I can identify with. No, it's true. And uh, I think we do well not to try and parse it out. Um, but to, I mean, we want to call people to repentance and to faith. Trust, you trust in God, trust also in me, Jesus says. Um, do, not, do not be afraid, John 14. Um, but uh, if, if faith does grow, it does increase. We can be oligopistoi is the Greek word. It's a compound word. Little, little faiths, small faiths. Although I think he's kind of, he's ribbing them a little bit. Like it's Jesus' equivalent of giving them a noogie. Um, and that's an image for you, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, it, I mean, this, again, as Tom mentioned, these are mysterious things that when in doubt, we point back to Christ. Yeah. Okay, so this is what Peter does here. He's, he's pointing to Jesus. It's not our power, our piety. The God who raised Jesus from the dead, he's the one who has this power. He's the one who has healed this man here and made him whole, made him well. Now he's going to turn a little bit and make it even more personal if that were possible. With verse 17, let me read this paragraph for us. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, his pice, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Okay. There it is, that ignorance thing, right at the beginning of this passage. Did you catch that? Verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And this is a surprising recurring theme in the New Testament. Number five on, on your handout there. God has shown forbearance on the basis of ignorance. It says you didn't, you didn't know, kind of to what Matt was saying before. It wasn't clear to you. Uh, what was all going on, what was happening um, in and through Jesus. God shows that patience and forbearance, but now Peter's saying the jig is up, right? Um, but as I was looking through, I, I, like I said, I was surprised how often this um, is spoken of. I mean, the most uh, clear word of it is Jesus on the cross. 
Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Was their forgiveness predicated on their ignorance? Or Paul in 1 Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, why? Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So I asked you at the outset, you know, when it comes to ignorance, are you still guilty even if you're acting in ignorance? And these passages, I don't think they speak against that, but they do muddy the waters a little bit, do they not? Mm -hmm. Anne, go ahead. Well, Jesus has some extra special harsh words for the Pharisees. Yes. Calling them blind guides. Right. Saying, make your followers twice as fit for hell. Right. You are yourselves. Yes. And um, I mean, but they are still the people who crucified him. <clears throat> and so it sounds like from what he's saying, yes, they're guilty. Yes. But, I mean, yes. Um, they also were acting ignorantly. And is it just because of that ignorance now that they have a, an opportunity to repent? Go ahead, Matt. Well, I think the following verse says it as well. Repent, therefore, yes. and turn back. That right. Your sins may be blocked yes. Out. So yeah. So yeah. So sitting. it's not. It, no, no. Yeah. So it's <clears throat> it's not that they've gotten a free pass or something like that, um, but it's that now. Okay. There's the summons to repentance. Like you guys acted ignorantly, but now that you know what you know, you are responsible for it. Right. You are obligated to it because you have. Heard this proclamation. I'm here telling it to you now. Um, but it, I mean, it, it raises interesting questions to think about. So, what about somebody who is in ignorance or who's still in the in the dark, right? Um, but this is our job to call them to repentance, to bear witness to what God has done in Christ. Um, I mean, you have also Paul says in Ephesians four. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay? So ignorance is not a morally neutral stance either. That hardness of heart gives way to an ignorance, to a, a darkening of the mind. So you can't, as I say, plead ignorance before God and just say, well, I don't know. Well, look, it, and it says in Romans 1, we suppress the truth. Our human nature, our sinful nature wants to suppress the truth of God, you know, tamp it down um, with this ignorance that comes through our uh, hardness of heart. So yeah. ignorance is in some way sin or original sin? Well, it, what it seems to be, a, it, I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is just what I said a moment ago, that ignorance is not morally neutral. We tend to think of ignorance as, well, you just don't know something. Whereas, biblically, ignorance is a morally freighted place to be in. To be ignorant is, to, is it's a reflection of our sinful nature and our hardness of heart. And so, um, as I say, you can't just plead ignorance or, or believe that you're getting a free pass on the basis of ignorance. For Jesus 
proclaims, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, this is why God doesn't just straight up strike them down right then and there. But now the call goes out to anyone and everyone <clears throat> need to repent. That ignorance is practically synonymous for being um, complicit and guilty of, of sin. Yeah, Esther. Uh, Romans chapter 1 really emphasizes that. Yes. For the wrath of God is revealed from ignorance, <coughs> all ungodliness, and yep. all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he goes on to say it was known, they known about God, it was plain to them because God made it known uh -huh. and has shown it to them his invisible uh, attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in all things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Yes, yeah, exactly. So they are without excuse. Now this is, in Romans 1, thank you, Esther, that is getting at what we um, will call natural revelation um, as opposed to special revelation. So God's special revelation is through the scriptures. Uh, his natural revelation is through creation and through, through our conscience. That's true for all people everywhere. And Paul's laying it out very clearly there. So they are without excuse. Um, nobody can make the case, well, I thought that I was without sin, right? You know, I thought that our conscience testifies against us. Now, it might be unacknowledged, right? Somebody might not be yet ready to acknowledge that it's sin. And in fact, this is true for all of us, right? We all have those things that we will secretly try to justify in our own mind. Well, okay, yeah, I do that. But that's not, I mean, it was a righteous indignation, see? Sure it was, right? That's why you kick the dog across the room. Um, and there's, we all have sins that we keep in ourselves that we try not to acknowledge, but that doesn't mean that they're unknown, right? And we're, and we're called to repent, repent of it. All right, so uh, Peter goes on then. You who were ignorant, now repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There's a lot just in these few verses here. That call to repentance, times of refreshing may come. But I want to zero in on one thing in particular here in verse 21. It says, whom heaven must receive until the time for it says, for restoring all the things about which God spoke. I would wish to um, adjust that translation just a little bit from the ESV um, to say something like this. The time for the restoration of all things, comma, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Um, the nuance that I'm trying to capture there is the promise is the restoration of all things. And this was... And then, comma, which was spoken of through the prophets long ago. What Peter's pointing forward to, what he's anticipating, is when Christ comes again and reconciles, restores all things. That new creation. So I think that Isaiah 65 comes in view here. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Or Paul in Colossians 1 says, Speaking of Jesus, he is the head of the body of the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what we're looking forward to is the reconciliation, the restoration of all things in and through Christ. Similar thing comes up in Ephesians 1. So this is what Peter is calling them to repent, recognizing that that is coming soon. Okay, I think it looks like our time's about up here. (laughs) Any last questions about that? We'll pick up from here um, probably in a couple of weeks. I don't, Pastor Schrader's going to be here next week. There will be Bible study, but I think he's probably going to do just kind of his own thing for the week. So please come and give him your uh, full and undivided uh, attention. But thank you for being here today. God bless you and... See you in a couple weeks.